0: Once you get a confession out of somebody, even one that is as ridiculous as Jesse's, um, you know, you're, you're set up for a conviction. And, and we see this playing out all around the country in, in cases where um, people, kids, adults falsely confess to crimes. The confessions don't make any sense, but still the state goes forward with charges and juries convict them.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi. West Coast meets East Coast. And yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. I'm Craig Williams from Sunny Southern California. My co host Bob Ambrosi is away on business today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash ltn. Well, Back in 1993, three Eight-year-old boys were found brutally murdered in West Memphis, Arkansas. After a frantic search to find the killers, three teens, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse M- Kelly, Jr. were arrested after Jesse, who is mentally disabled, admitted to the crime after a lengthy interrogation without a parent or counsel present. The other teens were then implicated by Jesse, and they received life sentences, and Damien was put on death row. Over the years, the three maintained their innocence and drew the support of many. Finally, after serving 18 years behind bars, the men, better known as the West Memphis Three, were released from prison after taking an Alfred plea. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at this highly controversial case reaction from the community, the Alfred plea, and what the future holds for these men and the victims' families. So we have three great guests today with us to discuss this case. Our first guest is Laura Nyrider. She's a staff attorney and adjunct professor at the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, which is part of Northwestern's University School of Law. Laura has represented several high-profile defendants who gave false or coerced confessions, including one of the West Memphis Three. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Laura.
0: Thanks so much. Good to be here.
2: And our next guest is attorney Ken Swindle from the Swindle Law Firm out of Rogers, Arkansas. Ken organized Attorneys of Conscience, a group of Arkansas attorneys that formed in support of the West Memphis Three. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ken.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And our next guest is Lonnie Sori. Lonnie is a highly respected media expert with a particular expertise in wrongful convictions. He's worked closely with Damian Eccles in the West Memphis Three case, and you can find out more information on Lonnie and his work at falseconfessions.org. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Lonnie.
4: Thank you for having us.
2: Well, Lonnie, let's start with you, and for those of uh, our listeners who are not familiar with this case, can you give us a brief overview? Well, May
4: 1993, three young uh, boys, eight-year-olds, were found uh, murdered and buried in uh, a few feet of water in a drainage ditch in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is on the Tennessee border. Um, Immediately, Damien Eccles, who uh, you've identified before as one of the young men who was convicted, was identified and because he had uh he had some minor run-ins with the law and was a local kid who uh dressed differently listened to rock music and uh and uh, was a a smart young man and dressed in black uh he was immediately targeted uh without any investigation uh i think what you had introduced was a f- sort of frenetic investigation actually it was no investigation Uh, They immediately went to his house. He cooperated with the police, gave uh, blood and saliva, fingerprints and things like that. But within a few weeks, uh, an acquaintance of his was picked up, Jesse Miss Kelly, who uh, uh, remains functionally illiterate, uh, an IQ of approximately 67, certainly mentally disabled. Jesse gave uh, statements to the police uh, that were um, actually um, incorrect, where Laura could go into more detail, were false confessions. He immediately uh, confessed and made incriminating statements that he was with the children, with Jason uh, Baldwin, another one of the defendants, and Damian Eccles at 9 o'clock in the morning uh, of the murders. There was just one problem with his confession. At 9 o'clock in the morning, they were in school. So the police do what they do. They came back and said, Jesse, you must have meant 3.30. And Jesse said, yeah. And then when the police realized that the children had been seen in that afternoon, they came back and said, Jesse, oh, you must have been 8 or 9. And they said, Jesse said, yeah, yeah. And that led to uh, a conviction for Jesse. Jesse's confession was unconstitutionally introduced to Damien and Jason's trial, which was separated because Jesse refused to testify against his acquaintances. And the rest is history. Damien was sentenced to death and has spent 18 years uh, virtually in solitary confinement, certainly the last 10. And Jesse and Jason were sentenced to 40 years uh, uh, in prison without parole, uh, and uh and uh, here we are today because uh, they've just been released and uh we are to begin their life and uh and we will continue to uh to fight for their full exoneration.
2: Well, Laura, your work with uh on cases that focus on the reality that children who get interrogated by police typically give false or involuntary confessions or perhaps just likely to give those kind of confessions. How how does that play here?
0: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> to take a step back, you know, false confessions are something that a lot of us at first think, what, you know, how could that be? How could anybody confess to a crime, especially one as heinous as this one, that they didn't commit? But what we know, what we've learned really over the last 15, 20 years since the development of DNA evidence is that people do, uh, people do uh, falsely confess to crimes and DNA then has subsequently shown that these people are absolutely innocent of these crimes and what we know also is that juveniles like Jessie and Ms. Kelly are between two to three times as likely to falsely confess during police interrogations. So, you know, why do they do that? It's because of the, the techniques uh, that are used during interrogations. They are, uh, the police are trained to follow a set of techniques that can be very effective, really too effective, actually, in making uh, making the people that they're talking to believe that it's in their best interests to confess. And what we see in this case is uh, those techniques were used with Jesse Kelly, who, as Lonnie said, you know, was already a very mentally limited guy. He was 17 years old, but he thought uh, like a seven-year-old, really. And uh, he's brought into the interrogation room, again, like Lonnie said, with no, uh, no parents, no attorney by his side. He was brought in not realizing that he was a suspect, and he was questioned uh, for a total, I believe, coming close to 12 hours. You know, the average interrogation in this country lasts more like 1.6 hours. And uh, Jesse was was hammered for a lot longer than that. Uh, and, you know, the other thing I'll note about Jesse's interrogation is we know some of the techniques that were used on him to produce the statement that he gave. Uh, but we don't know everything that that was said to him by his interrogators because the statement was not electronically recorded in its entirety. That's a reform that a lot of states have pushed recently to prevent exactly these kinds of situations from happening, to prevent cases like the West Memphis Three. Um, And here we see exactly what that lack of recording caused. Uh, It caused courts to credit Jesse's confession, which was worthy of total dismissal.
3: If I can add uh, one thing from that, and and, uh, this can't swindle. I don't have, uh, I don't represent any of the West Memphis Three, and uh you know, what I've learned of the case, I just learned from reading Mar uh wonderful book, um, The Devil's Knot. But one thing that struck me in reading that book is that um, when Jesse was finished with his confession, uh, he went back to his cell to wait for his father to come pick him up. Uh, he thought that he was going home. And I think that's significant in itself to uh, to show the the mindset that he had in giving that statement. He just wanted to go home. And and if you can imagine a seven- or eight-year-old child, um, I think it's pretty easy to understand what mindset he was under. Um, you know, children will say anything if they can just go home. And that, that was certainly his state of mind.
2: Well, let's talk about what we typically see in criminal cases. What do we have for physical evidence? Do we have weapons? Do we have motives? What kind of connection to the crime, do the West Memphis Three have to what
5: happened here?
4: Well, this is Lonnie. Virtually no connection to the three children. They had no motive. They had no opportunity. Uh, there was no way that they could have possibly, uh, their DNA was not found at the crime scene. Uh, virtually, uh, no evidence linking them to the crime. Uh, there was a young girl who testified that she heard Damien make some incriminating statements at a baseball game. Uh, but clearly, those were uh, were were not very valid. But nevertheless, the jury heard those. That was about all. Damien did, uh, you know, was a, a rock kid who had rock musician uh, interest. He had lyrics that were taken out of his uh, his notebooks that were uh, read to juries, things like that. But there was no uh, evidence uh, that linked these three young men to the crime.
3: If I can add uh, just another thing very quickly. Um... Although they're they're well known as the West Memphis Three, um, I think it's significant that they're actually from a little town called Marion, Arkansas. They're not even from West Memphis, and they're um, uh, where they were living at the time is more than eight miles from the dumping site um, where the children were found. And uh, uh, these were these were kids uh, who didn't even have driver's license, didn't drive cars. Um, just the logistics of of uh, trying to accomplish what they were charged with, I think, stretches the imagination to a breaking point.
0: Yeah, and this is Laura. You know, I, the thing I'd add here is, you know, I think that the fact that there is no other evidence, no other creditable evidence against the West Memphis Three besides Jesse's confession, which is in, the, in and of itself completely unbelievable, uh, you know, just goes to show that, you know, in these situations... Once you get a confession out of somebody, even one that is as ridiculous as Jesse's, um, you know, you're, you're set up for a conviction. And, and we see this playing out all around the country in, in cases where um, people, kids, adults falsely confess to crimes. The confessions don't make any sense, but still the state goes forward with charges and juries convict them.
2: Well, Lonnie, you've worked closely with Damien Nichols in this case. Tell us a little bit about Damien and his fight for innocence.
4: Well, he's um, you know Damien has been virtually uh, in a torturous situation on death row, um, living 23 hours a day in a cell, and the one hour he got out of his cell was to be moved to another cell. He has not had sun, not seen the sun in close to 10 years. He's not had a fresh piece of fruit in close to 10 years. Within the context of that, he has uh, lived and grown to be an incredible young man with the help of. Laurie Davis, his wife, who also led the campaign to free the West Memphis Three over the last uh, 14 or so years. Damien is a, is, a, is a writer and, and an artist and uh, you know, somewhat of a philosopher and, and uh, still a little bit of a wise guy. He's an incredible guy, and it was his his strength and, and fortitude that really inspires all of us to continue to work and, and, and to work to free him and the other two fellows. Um, I, I can't say enough of him. He was, he became public, um, and was willing to talk about the case, uh, which was very helpful because he made a connection with the public, his being, I mean, he was attracted, uh, became, sorry, he became very attractive to, to people out there and sort of connected with the larger audience because, uh, people identified with him. He was a poor kid, listened to rock music, was kind of an outsider, And I think people like Eddie Vedder and and Johnny Depp and Natalie Maines, artists are a bit of outsiders. Artists are often uh, always a little strange or, you know, the kids in in the classroom who are a little more introspective. And and that was Damien. And that was why, in many ways, you see this kind of support out there from the artistic community. And of course, what we've done in the last few years has really changed the hearts and minds of the people of Arkansas, because that's where the difference, that's where the difference is. And I think we've We've accomplished a great deal, and that led to people like Ken Swindle, my colleague on the phone here, organizing a group of lawyers to be public, and Laura Nyrider, um, who stepped up early on to support this case uh, with the Center on Wrongful Convictions, writing an amicus brief. So all these things sort of came together at the end.
2: What was the tipping point?
4: That's a great question. I would say the DNA evidence in 2007 that uh, linked the stepfather of one of the victims to the crime scene. His hair was found in the binding used to tie up not even his own child, but another child. That DNA evidence allowed us to go back to court. We then got the country's leading forensic experts, pathologists, and developed, and they had them look at the case, and they found that most of the wounds which were on the children's bodies, which were used to sort of create hysteria in the case that it was Satanistic and ritualistic. Those wounds were caused post-mortem by animal bites, snapping turtles and the sort in the body of water where they were. Uh, new evidence that, um placed three eyewitnesses that saw the children with one of the stepfathers. All these things sort of came together, and then what happened, certainly from the beginning, author Mara Leverett, who wrote the book, and other people in the public have came forth, and that began a process of educating, I'd like to say, the public audiences of Arkansas and nationally. And that began, since we had new evidence, it was now the time to get those innocence issues out to the public audiences and garner more legal community support, uh, more public support and, uh, it culminated. I think it all came together with the uh, legal experts and, and bring, you know, bringing in, uh, Steve Braga, who was, lead, became the lead attorney at the end of the case. Uh, that all sort of came together and, and resulted in this, uh, this, uh, you know, imperfect, um, agreement, but one that freed them, what I like to say, to fight another day, freed them to fight their wrongful convictions outside of prison, as opposed to from inside the prison where, you know, the tens of thousands of other wrongful, wrongfully convicted men and women remain.
2: Laura, the governor's indicated that he's not going to pardon these people until somebody finds the real killers. What's what's your reaction to that?
0: Well, my reaction to that is the right people who should be out there trying to find the real killers is the state of Arkansas. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've stated that even though they believe at a new trial, uh, Damien, Jason, and Jesse would be acquitted, They've also stated that they uh, are not interested in going out there and and trying to find who actually did this crime. Uh, So, you know, there's definitely some frustration there, but that doesn't preclude, as Lonnie just said, it doesn't preclude the West Memphis Three themselves from going out there and trying to find the real killer, and also doesn't uh, doesn't prevent, you know, people from all around the world from continuing to express their uh, desire that justice finally be done in this case. You know, it's a fantastic thing; we're overjoyed that Damien, Jason, and Jesse were able to walk free on Friday, and it was a tremendous thing to witness. But justice has not been complete for them, and it has not been complete for the victim's families in this case because whoever did this crime uh, is still out there on the streets. And we've got some evidence, uh, as Lonnie alluded to, some DNA evidence that, you know, provides a pretty good starting point in in an investigation. So, uh, you know, my reaction is, you know, let's get out there and find the real guys and I'm looking for the state of Arkansas to step up on that.
3: If I could just add uh, one thing this, can Swindle, um, the governor did make that statement, which is one end of the spectrum, uh, but the other end of the spectrum is the, the prosecution, you know, uh, in the second judicial district, which, you know, Jonesboro is is uh, part of that. And uh, Scott Ellington has indicated that he's keeping an open mind and, and he's waiting for new evidence. So, uh, they might not be taking uh, a proactive uh, approach, and, and, and I would uh, agree that they should be taking that proactive approach, uh, but I do think it's significant that, that uh, Mr. Ellington is, has stated that he's keeping an open mind, uh, and, and I also think it's significant that uh, Mr. Ellington was even willing to enter into any type of negotiations. The fact that uh uh, he was a, he is agreeable to let them go with time served, I think says something to his belief in their guilt or innocence. Because uh, you know, as, as other people have pointed out, prosecutors who uh, believe that they are holding people who are truly guilty of triple homicides of of three you know young boys uh, do not let them go with eighteen years served. So I I, I, I am optimistic that there's an there is an opening there. In the prosecutor's office that did not exist with the former prosecutor.
4: I, I would say, make no mistake, that this was a political decision. I mean, that's we knew we had created momentum uh, in their innocence, leading to a evidentiary hearing in December, which we hoped we would win, and, and hopefully a, a calling for a new trial of, or you know overturning their convictions. I think the state made a decision, and I'm pleased with it, imperfect as it may be. But it was a decision in their best interest as well, because I believe they knew that this case wasn't ending, and the, the movement really, uh, both among journalists and, and folks in Arkansas, was not going to change. And we had created quite, quite a, a phenomena of innocence for these three young men, and it was not weighing on the political uh, establishment very well. I think they were well aware that this was going to happen, and they were looking to make a deal.
2: The public reaction's been all over the map on this. There have been people that are are significantly in support of it and people that are just screaming out that justice is not being done and that these guys are being let off unfairly. What's your reaction to that?
4: Well, I'll jump in. I don't think that's accurate. I think there's one or two people that have gotten attention. When we were in front of the courthouse, uh, there was a stepfather or a father of one of the victims who had never even taken care of his child, uh, he pops up when the television cameras are around. All due respect to his family, uh, he was never there for his own child. He, he, uh, you know, of course, when one person shows up, the cameras all go to him. I don't think there's split decision. I think there's tremendous support for these young men. I think the decision is controversial in the sense that it was so quick. Uh, you know, these guys immediately got out. I think the process, I think people are more having a problem with the process. I think we're having a problem with the process. It's it's so shocking and so new and so uh, uh, so immediate, which is great for those kids to get out. But I think people are more, you know, usually these cases, they you go through torturous hearings and then re-hearings, and, um, and, and you sort of build a little momentum, and even in yourself preparing either for the good news or the bad. Here it was just so quick, and I think the community is shocked in that respect. I don't think the most, the majority of the community didn't think that something was wrong in this case.
3: And, and Lonnie is certainly more in tune with the, the pulse of the community, and he's been in charge of the communication aspect of this for, for years. Um, I can just tell you from my perspective in trying to put together uh, my group of attorneys uh, from all corners of the state, and I was calling in uh, a lot of favors from, from people that I've uh, gotten to know over the years. Um and I could only find one attorney uh in West Memphis of all places who was actually in favor of the verdict now i I found a lot of attorneys who might say i you know i can 't get involved for this reason or that reason, but I could only find one attorney out of all the people I called who came down clearly on the side of conviction they're guilty, so at least in the legal community, although the Arkansas attorneys haven't spoken with a very loud b- voice, I think there's been a lot of whispers that, hey, we all really know we got this wrong.
2: What we need to do quick is take a break, and we'll be right back with more on the West Memphis Three.
5: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Cleo. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process?
2: No. I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days.
5: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank
2: you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's g o c l i o dot
1: has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
6: Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis and they are working under NDA on a brand-new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge or to learn more, Visit wwwmyfirmmanagercom LTN.
1: You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
2: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams, and we're talking today about the West Memphis Three with Laura Nyreiter, Attorney Ken Swindle, and Lonnie Sorry. Ken, before the break we were talking, we were going to start talking about attorneys of conscience. Can you tell us how that came about?
3: Well, Sure. Um, you know, like a lot of people, uh, I'd seen the two documentaries, HBO documentaries, and uh, the impression that I got from from those two documentaries is that the jury got it wrong. And I just put it in the back of my mind. It'll get worked out somehow. Um, and, and I just really laid it on the jury. And I just thought, you know, somehow it's going to get worked out. And I didn't get involved. Um, but just by uh, happenstance, I just happened to find out about uh, this book called Devil's Knot by Mar Leverett at a legal conference I was at last November right after the Supreme Court reversed and sent the case back for more findings under a different standard. We were talking about that case, and somebody mentioned this book. And I started reading the book, and and I just became outraged. Um, And if anything, I started somewhat feeling sorry for the jury uh, because of all the evidence they were not allowed to hear and all the evidence they were forced to hear that they shouldn't have heard uh and, and I counted in Mara's book in my opinion, this is just my opinion. There were twenty one separate grounds for reversal now you know uh, the Supreme Court affirmed those convictions, and I think that they started with the um conclusion that we're going to affirm and work their way back through the reasoning uh but if you if any objective person who reads uh Mara's book and she details every Ruling meticulously uh, throughout the book, uh, it it just at some point it becomes intellectually dishonest to say these were fair hearings or these were fair trials, and that's what really got me motivated. I you know I started thinking uh, either a lot of attorneys know about this in Arkansas and they're okay with it, um, or nobody really knows what really happened those trials behind the scenes in the evidentiary hearings and, and. you know, the evidence that the juries were allowed to hear and not hear. Uh, And when you get into a lot of those individual rulings, they're they're pretty outrageous, uh, what was going on. And uh, I just started buying all the books I could of devil's knot and mail them out to attorneys saying, hey, we we have to do something. We have to speak out on this because the the trial itself had so many problems.
2: Well, tell us a little bit about the... uh Paradise Lost movie with by Joe Berenger and Bruce Sanofsky. and apparently there's also another book out there. As you just mentioned, The Devil's Knot. Tell us about the movie.
4: The movie was it was very interesting uh, that the uh, they were allowed to film. They it, what happened was they read a story in the New York Times right at the time of the arrest, and they stayed, they thought it was very interesting. HBO agreed to send them down, and they actually got access to the court during the trial, and it was uh, somewhat controversial. Uh, in terms of what they were allowed to film. But essentially, they pulled together a record of that hearing, of that original trial, and had interviews with a lot of people around that. That movie, the first movie, was produced a few years later and really went around the world. And that's where people began to hear about the case or at least hear about the injustice. So that movie led the effort to... Uh, Turn this case around, and that's how they got a lot of support from the music community, the arts community, people like Eddie Vedder and uh, Natalie Maines, and uh, now Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, and his wife. Those are the people that have come forth over the years and provided great support. HBO did a second movie, and now they're working on a third, which will be out soon at a Toronto Film Festival and in a New York Film Festival. So it really was this sort of centerpiece of of the beginning of this effort that Meryl Everett and uh, they made a movie and, and, uh, and essentially began turning, turning an audience. And even Damien Echols says if it wasn't for the movie, he would have been executed.
2: Okay, Laura, what are the next steps for the West Memphis Three?
0: Well, the next steps for them are to begin living their lives uh, as free men, which is you know, something they've never done as adults. Uh, so the next steps, I think, are, are just to rest and, and try to recover and try to process what's happened, uh, what's happened to them over the last 18 years. And, uh, you know, I'm proud and pleased to say that there are a lot of supporters out there who will be able to help them do that and help them do that in a way that's healthy and, and productive for them. Um, and the next steps in terms of, uh, you know, their lives, they're they're going to live their lives how, how they choose to live their lives, which is which is a wonderful thing for them. They've not had that, that choice in so many years. Uh, but, but in terms of their case, they're, uh, you know, they're determined, determined to prove their innocence uh, and have it be shouted from the rooftops and is very much to continue uh, all efforts to get official recognition of their innocence.
2: Well, we've reached n- near the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts. And Ken, I'd like to start with you, and and just please, if you could, include in your wrap-up uh, a little explanation of the Alford plea.
3: Sure. The Alford plea, uh, in a nutshell, is uh, the defendants get to, get to accept the uh, offer made by a prosecutor, the recommendation for uh, a certain sentence. Uh, and while still maintaining their innocence. Um, and uh, it's very rarely used. In fact, I'm not aware of any other cases in Arkansas, but um, it, it, it's somewhat of a quirk uh, to say uh, I agree that the uh, defense or the prosecutor has enough evidence that I would probably get convicted, but I still maintain that I'm innocent. Um, so in, in this case, you had a situation where the Supreme Court sent the case back for more findings, and the judge ruled that they, that the West Memphis Three were entitled to a new trial because they, they a, a jury probably would not convict. And then they turned around and accepted an Alford plea in which the West Memphis Three said uh, they thought that they would be convicted, uh, or there was enough evidence to to convict them. So that kind of shows the contradiction in this case, uh, but it was a compromise uh, just to get them out of a very bad situation.
2: And Ken, can you give us your uh, contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, Ken Swindle uh, in Rogers, Arkansas. You can look me up on Facebook, Attorneys of Conscience. We have a group of both attorneys and non-attorneys who are in support of the West Memphis Three, as well as uh, trying to raise awareness in other ways uh, about any injustice in the judicial system. Uh, telephone number 479 120
5: Great.
2: Laura, your final thoughts and your contact information?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I guess as my final thoughts, I'd just like to, you know, I guess remind folks that, you know, the West Memphis Three case is a totally unique case, but it's not the only case. It's not an isolated case. You know, these boys, as 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 Lonnie mentioned, were incredibly lucky to have their case of wrongful conviction publicized uh, by the work of the original HBO filmmakers and then by the, the work of so many uh, hundreds and really thousands of people around the world who created this movement to free them. Uh, but there are other people around the country, other kids around the country who are in very similar situations, who are locked up in prison for things they didn't do, uh, whose cases have not benefited from, uh, really, the shining of the light of, of day and the truth on them. So, you know, I'd urge folks to to take a look at um, at our website, which I guess is where you can find my contact information, uh, www.cwcy. That org. That's the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, uh, where you can learn a little bit more about, uh, about our work that we do in cases just like the West Memphis Three. Um, and I look forward to, to speaking with anybody who uh, would like to talk more about this.
4: Great.
2: Thank you. And Lonnie?
4: My contact information is suri.com or on falseconfessions.org. I would say uh, when Dame, when I first met Damien Eccles, he said to me, it must be really different in New York in terms of how prosecutors and and police treat suspects and and get their convictions. And I looked at Damien and I said, the only thing different is the accents. And to mirror what Laura said, there are tens of thousands of wrongful convictions out there, uh, prosecutors prosecuting cases, getting false confessions. But it really takes a village, and these things, these cases are so hard to overturn. It's easy to convict an innocent man; it's virtually impossible to free one. I think the public aspect, this public campaign, along with good lawyering and and uh, and uh, other aspects of the case, re- and 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 excellent investigations, those three things really help to make uh, overturn wrongful convictions.
2: Great. Thank well, thank much. you very much, Lonnie and Ken and. Laura, for being with us. We uh, appreciate your participation today. And for our listeners, remember now you can check out and get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to the legaltalknetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think
6: lawyer to lawyer. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not?
5: I'm listening to Legal Talk Network Podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center.
6: Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them?:
5: It's easy. Just go to Legaltalknetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it and start listening. Or go to Westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk network programs available for CLE.:
6: Perfect. I'll do that right now.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss.